Last week, we saw that God's glorious power was vindicated in David's triumph over Goliath, for David was able to be successful by the power and might of God. However, it was not simply God's glorious power that was vindicated against Goliath, but also God's choice of David is to be as uh, God's choice of David to be king was vindicated as well. That's a very important role in which that passage serves. If you remember, when David is anointed as king, Samuel just assumes when he sees the sons of Jesse that Eliab is to be the next king. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 6, it says, When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on the appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks upon the heart. Certainly God's choice was the right choice. And it was vindicated in that battle. For if you remember, Eliab is singled out in the text as rebuking David. He is upset with David and the way in which David is speaking about fighting Goliath. The role of that is to simply demonstrate that God was right. Samuel is thinking Eliab is the natural king. The scripture reveals that Eliab wasn't the one that would be able to deliver Israel. He was not the right choice. But not only is the individual vindicated, but also the reason for the choice, namely being a person after God's own heart. God's assessment was correct, and God's priorities were correct. David, in fact, would be a good king. It didn't matter that he was young. It didn't matter that he was weak. It didn't matter that he didn't have the resources of weaponry that others had. What mattered was he was a man after God's own heart. And that proved to be correct. That brought the victory. God is vindicated. We underestimate the need of integrity in our leaders, both in the church and in so-called secular society. This morning, our theme is Character Matters, and it is a study in contrast, a study in contrast to the response to David's success. One should not miss the repetitions in chapter 18 referring to David's success. It is mentioned four times in the scriptures. In verse 5 of chapter 18, it says, David went out and was successful where Saul sent him. Verse 14, and David had success in all his undertakings. Verse 15, and when Saul saw that he had great success. In verse 30, as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul. Success, success, success. David is successful. And three times that success is repeatedly ascribed to God. David is successful because God 
is with him. But what is significant is the series of contrasts between the way in which Jonathan and Saul respond to David's success, beginning with David's success in victory over Goliath. These responses to David's success and what motivates those responses are essential for us to understand. For they reveal a great deal about the character of Jonathan and Saul. And what we are to constantly be reminded of, it's what character is what matters. That is what is important. And so the responses of Saul and Jonathan reveal their different character. This chapter is extremely important in the unfolding of the rest of 1 Samuel and even 2 Samuel. It is foundational. It is key. It is essential that we understand this chapter for it explains everything that is going to occur for the rest of Saul's kingship and even the beginning of David's kingship. It's going to explain why David has to flee from Saul. It's going to explain Saul's continual pursuit of David and the desire to see David killed. And even the initial opposition that David faces when he becomes king in 2 Samuel. It is going to be cause of what is going to take place in this chapter, and I will unfold that for you as we work through. But we will notice that in verse 16 of chapter 18, it says, But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. That is essential. It seems like a small detail, but circle it. Why is that so important? Well, because by the time of Saul's death, because of the way that he has poisoned Israel, they are going to no longer look at David's kingship as legitimate. And they're going to reject David as king. Listen to the words of 2 Samuel, chapter 2. This is immediately after Saul's death. And David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. So he commends the followers of Saul. Now may the Lord show you steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. But Abner the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth the son of Saul and brought him over to Manheim. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years, but the house of Judah followed David. This is going to create a real mess in Israel because of Saul's unwillingness to initially release his 
authority to David, and because he poisons Israel against David, 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1 says, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. What seems as somewhat insignificant events turn out to be monstrumental in the life of Israel. What we are to learn is that character really matters. And it all starts in the passage before us today. We're going to start at chapter 18, verse 1. I'm not going to forget about 1 Corinthians, uh, excuse me, 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 55 and following. I'm going to deal with them next week as they more uh, clearly are associated with what happens in the next verses. So we'll go back to them next week. I'll pick them up as we see how they relate to what is going to happen after verse 16. So this morning we start at verse uh, 1 of chapter 18, emphasizing the contrast between Jonathan and Saul, a contrast in character that is seen in the contrast in the, res- in the way in which they respond to David's success. The first contrast in responding to David's success is that Jonathan responds to David with love and commitment, where Saul responds in anger. Jonathan responds to David with love, verse 1. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Now, the various love of people for David is found four times in the uh, chapter 18. But what I want to focus on, first of all, is the people's love for David. And the people love David because of David's success, especially his military success. David continues to fight Israel battle. If you look at verse 16, it says, But all Israel loved David, and it tells us the reason. For he went out and came in before them. The people loved David because of his accomplishments, because of his success, if you will. They loved him for what he had done, his keeping the nation safe, his triumphing over the enemies. They felt secure, protected, and confident. They loved David because of what he could do for the nation. They loved David because of what he produced. But there's a a real contrast between the people's love for Jonathan and, uh, excuse me, love for David, and Jonathan's love for David. For Jonathan doesn't love David simply because of what David does. But he loves David because of why he does it. Notice verse 1. As soon as he had finished speaking of Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. As his own soul. Not only was David a man after God's own heart, 
David was a man after Jonathan's heart as well. As well. They are soulmates, if you will. Like Jonathan, David had demonstrated a great faith in God. Both had fought against humanly insurmountable odds because of their faith in God. Like Jonathan, David had fought for the glory of God and saw that it was important for God's name to be honored and glorified. So Jonathan loved David because David was like Jonathan. They could relate to each other. They were soulmates in their faith in God and the desire for the glory of God. In short, what, David, what Jonathan loved about David was his character. For his character. In contrast to this love for David, contrast, Saul responds to David in anger. If you look down at verse 6, it says, As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistines, the women out of all the cities of Israel, singing, dancing, to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, very angry at this response, at this result of David's success. And not only was he angry, but he was very unhappy with the situation. Verse 8, And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He was upset. He was upset that people would speak of Saul has having killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Why? Well, this leads us into the second point. That is, the second contrast is that Jonathan responds to David's success in selfless humility. That's the character that we want to emulate. That is what we want to exalt this morning. Selfless humility. But Saul responds in selfish pride. That's the contrast. David responds, excuse me, Jonathan responds to David with selfless humility. Saul responds in selfish pride. First, Jonathan responds in selfless humility. Jonathan humbles himself and honors David. Like John the Baptist, when the people came to John and said that there are people following Jesus, John the Baptist's response was, he must increase and I must decrease. Jonathan has the same response to David's success, namely, he must increase and I must decrease. That's easy to say when you're comparing yourself to Christ. It's quite another when you're comparing yourself to another human being and the role that they are playing in God's kingdom. But nonetheless, he responds with this humility. Jonathan realized the appropriateness of David being the next king over Israel. 
Jonathan honors David by recognizing the appropriateness of David succeeding Saul as king over Israel. Look at verse 4. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him. That's huge. This robe would have been Jonathan's princely garment. This robe would have been that which distinguishes Jonathan as the prince, the next in line, the one who is going to become the next king of Israel as David, as, as Saul's son. But Jonathan takes off that princely robe and gives it to David to symbolically state that Jonathan recognizes David as the next one to be right in line with the throne. He is handing the position over to David at this point. Now, remember that the anointing of David to be king has been semi-private. And so we might ask the question as we work through this passage, does Jonathan and Saul know at this point that David has been anointed as king? He has been. It's God's chosen one. But has that been revealed to them? I think we could argue both sides. The scripture's silent on the matter. I don't know. I, we do know without a shadow of a doubt that, that Saul knows that Jonathan is not going to follow him. John, Saul knows without a shadow of a doubt that he's going to lose the kingdom because of his own pride and unrighteousness. Well, whatever the case, at this moment, Jonathan recognizes the appropriateness of David becoming the next king in Israel. That's a humble transfer of power to the next future king. And it is striking. Secondly, Jonathan humbles himself and honors David as a great military leader and the appropriateness of David replacing Jonathan as leader over the army of Israel. Now, remember, we've been a few chapters and a few weeks away from the previous events, but if you remember, Jonathan has distinguished himself as an incredible warrior. And he is the now leader of the army in Israel. Because of the great battles that he has won, because he single-handedly had defeated so many Philistines, he was the military leader, and now he's going to hand that leadership over to David. Notice verse 4. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on, his, on him and gave it to David. That's succession to be the next king. And his armor, even his sword, and his bow, and his belt. Everything that symbolized his military strength and prowess. Here's my sword, here's my armor, here's my belt, 
David, it is yours. I want you to have it. You deserve it. It belongs to you. What a mark of humility. What a mark of humility. Why does he do this? Why does he do this? Why does he recognize the appropriateness? One of the questions that has always been in the back of my mind, when I read chapter 17 in the battle of David and Goliath is, where is Jonathan? Where is Jonathan? His absence screams. Was he somewhere else? Was he on a trip? What, did he have another assignment? Where is Jonathan? Remember that for 40 days, Goliath has been coming out and challenging the army of Israel. Jonathan's the head of that army. It's kind of hard to imagine that he wouldn't have been there. All we are told is in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 10 and 11, it says, And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. All Israel. Could that have included Jonathan? Could Jonathan have been dismayed and greatly afraid? It's not impossible to think. For again, the emphasis is not on the individual, as I've been saying last week. It is not that David is so unique in his faith, for in ensuing chapters, we're going to see that David himself is repeatedly afraid of numerous enemies and goes into trickery, goes into deceit, goes into lying because he's afraid of enemies that nowhere near compare to Goliath. For we are inconsistent human beings. We're not steadfast. We're not always at our best. But on this occasion, Jonathan recognizes the appropriateness, and I personally believe that part of it is his reckoning with his own failure in having fought Goliath. And because he loves the character, because he loves the faith, because he loves the fact that God is glorified, he says, David, it's yours. It belongs to you. It's right. He's humble. He acknowledges his weaknesses. He's willing to accept the will of God. In contrast, Saul responds to David in selfish pride. When David's praises are sung for David's military prowess, Saul responds in jealousy and envy. In verse 5, Saul also recognizes 
David's military ability. You can't deny it. Verse 5, and David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul sent him over the men of war. So Saul places him in authority. However, when people are singing David's praises, Saul becomes jealous. Verse 6 and following. And they were coming home when David returned from striking down the Philistine. The women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul and tambourines with songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And Saul was very angry and this displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David tens thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. How dare they? How dare they praise David more than I? And then he asked the question, and what more can he be given but the kingdom? He has the people's hearts. What more can he have? He's already been elevated. The last thing left is the kingdom. The kingdom. And Saul has been fighting and fighting and fighting to hold on to the kingdom. God had told him, you're going to be removed. He says, I will not be removed. And he's angered at Jonathan's success. Herein is the logical outcome of Saul's pride. What motivated Saul? Well, it was his pride. Pride, as it's revealed in that passage, that says he was dismayed, angered when he heard Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. And what seems so insignificant, all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 17, when Samuel is standing before Saul and says, God is going to remove you as king. He says to, to Saul at that moment, Samuel said, Is it not true that you, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed you as king? Is it true that when you were humble, God made you king? But now you're a king of pride, and so the kingdom is going to be removed from you. It may seem like a small thing. Character matters. And God realized character matters. And now this pride so manifests itself that he is ready to actually kill David. Which brings us to the third point. The third contrast is that Jonathan responds to David with commitment that trusts and protects David, and Saul is distrustful 
and seeks to harm David. So first, Jonathan responds to David with a commitment of trust and protection. That commitment is found in the form of a covenant, which is revealed in verses 2 and 3. Verse Samuel 18, 2. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Verse 3. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. He made a compact with David that day. A mutual commitment. As I say, this passage is foundational to all that takes place in the rest of 1 Samuel and even moving into 2 Samuel. And in 1 Samuel chapter 23, verse 16, again, we are referred to a covenant between David and Jonathan. In chapter 23, Saul is once again angered, not only at David, but also his own son, Jonathan, for his allegiance to David. And in 1 Samuel 23, 16, it says, And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. He's out, Saul is out to kill David. He's been hunting him over the countryside. And Jonathan says this to David, You shall be king over Israel. I shall be next to you. You will be king. I will be under you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. It starts here. The covenant. You will be the king. Here's the robe. You will be the leader. Here's the army. Here's the armor. You will be first, and I will be under you. Conversely, Saul responds with suspicion of David and seeks to kill him. Number one, Saul has a suspicion of David, verse 9. So Saul eyed David from that day on. He was watching him. You know that, that old... My eyes on you, David. I'm watching every step. I'm watching what you do. I'm on to you, David. And then Saul seeks to harm David, starting at verse 10. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Now, this is not new. We encountered this harmful spirit back in chapter 16, and we went into some detail, but let me just sum it up. The harmful spirit was in removing Saul from the kingship. The spirit was working against Saul and working for David. Saul had his spear in the hand. Now, it's important to realize that this is not caused by the spirit, but it's an explanation, if you will, of God working against Saul and for David. 
Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul here he hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. I'm going to kill this guy. But David evaded him twice. So this happened more than once. David evaded him twice. Next, Saul was afraid of David. That is, that he would lose the kingdom to David. Saul was afraid of David because he knew that the Lord was with David. That the Lord was on David's side, verse 12. And Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but he departed from Saul. Saul knew that. Saul knew that the Spirit was with David. He knew that the Spirit had departed from him in the sense of supporting him to be king. It was unavoidably clear to Saul, which only makes Saul more culpable. It isn't that Saul didn't know better. It isn't that Saul didn't know what he was supposed to do. It's that Saul was defiant. And ultimately, not of David, but of God. He's not fighting against David. He's fighting against God. And that's why he needed to be removed. All because of his pride. And David continues to be successful because the Lord is with him, starting in verse 14. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in awful fear of him. I uh, skipped verse 13. Let me go back there. It says, so Saul removed him from his presence. He wanted to get him out of there. He wanted to get him away from the, from the kingdom. He wanted to get him away from a place of authority. And wherever Saul sent him, David was meeting success. And he stood in fearful all of him. Because God was on his side. But he didn't submit. He didn't give himself over to the will of God. He just knew that his days were numbered. And it terrified him. In contrast, we see the people of the kingdom's response to David, which is where we're going to end this particular portion. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Again, summing up and going back to the beginning, why this is so important is from now on, the accounts are going to be of Saul chasing David all over the countryside. Not only Saul, but Saul's army trying to kill David, poisoning the nation against David. Initially, they love David. Everyone does. But Saul is so going to poison the people of Israel that when he dies, they're going to reject David as king. Right now, there's unity. 
Right now, they're all on board. But because of Saul's pride, and because of Saul's unwillingness to submit to the will of God and give up his authority, he's going to poison the people of Israel so that they reject David, and there's going to be war that follows. War that follows. Conclusion. What are we to take away from this passage? Well, once again, this chapter is foundational to the rest of 1 Samuel and even 2 Samuel. It explains why Saul is going to be pursuing David and wanting to kill David, namely because Saul is jealous and doesn't want to see the kingdom pass to David. He wants to see the kingdom pass to Jonathan. It's not even about himself, but it's about his legacy. It explains why Jonathan loves David and sides with David over his father. It explains how humility and character matter, how he's concerned about the will of God and says to David, you must be first and I will be second. It explains how the kingdom became poisoned against David with all the lies that were spread about David as Saul is pursuing him and trying to kill him. It explains how some people view David's kingship as illegitimate and think that it has to pass on to Saul's son, namely Ishbosheth. All comes out of this passage. But what we need to understand is character matters. Character matters. It all flows out of the difference of humility and pride, of selfishness and selflessness, about individual or the whole, about the submission of God or the refusal to submit to God and his will. So what are the great takeaways? Well, first and foremost, Again, we're to learn that character matters. That the foundational verse of 1 Samuel is that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks upon the heart. That is the core of 1 Samuel. What seems like an insignificant statement is essential. The difference between looking on the heart and looking on the outward appearance the nation looked at the outward appearance. They looked at his abilities. They looked at his accomplishments. They loved David because of what David did. Look at what he's gotten done. Look how he's defeated the enemies. Look how he has prospered us. People weren't concerned about the heart. They didn't love David because of why he did it. They didn't love David because of his love of God, they were just concerned about success in the secular realm. 
I submit to you today that people all too often aren't concerned about character or heart. There's nothing new. People are concerned about success. People are concerned about, have I gotten wealthier? People are concerned about, do I feel safer? People are concerned about, what has this person gotten done? Not about character. Not about heart. What can they do for me? What is their policies? What have they gotten accomplished? Nothing new. What we're to see is that the heart really does matter. It has practical applications. It makes a real difference in society and culture and even a nation. A prideful heart can be a person's undoing. Saul started off well. He ended so poorly because of his pride. Pride will always undo us. Not just in the secular realm, in the spiritual realm also. How many leaders, because of their pride, end up in disgrace, end up in being removed, end up in failure to bring glory to God? What is even more shocking is not only that pride can be the undoing of an individual, but it can be the undoing of a ministry. And not only the undoing of a ministry, it can actually be the undoing of a nation. A nation. Israel. Fighting for years. Because of this issue of pride all the way back in chapter 15 and now rearing its ugly head in chapter 18. It teaches us that a proud heart can lead to an unwillingness to relinquish power and authority to another. A proud heart can actually lead to violence if that authority is not willing to be relinquished. A leader is not only to be a military leader, or an economic leader, but also a moral leader. All governmental leaders need to have integrity or we run amok. All societal leaders, church leaders, need to have integrity or we run amok. It's about integrity. It's about character. It's about heart. What does this passage have to say to us today? I think a great deal. This isn't just a history lesson. We haven't just gathered here this morning to say, teach me about Israel and what happened 4,000 years ago. This is God's word speaking to us today. This is how we're to respond as the people of God to what God has revealed to us as what is important to him and what's important to society. So what are we to think about today? I say a great deal, and I would encourage you to reflect on this passage and ask that question of yourself. How do these things relate to the events of our day? 
What about our nation? We are in a time of turmoil. And the scriptures encourage us to think upon that which is good. We've been talking about Philippians on Sunday nights. We've been talking about peace. We've been talking about the response that we should have as Christians. And the word of God says, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are true, whatever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. So the first thing I would admonish us to do is try to forget all the negativity that, we are, that surrounds us. All the negativity, all the animosity, all the hatred. Get your mind off of those things. And think about the things that are just, that are right, that are true, that are good. You say, well, what is that? How do we find that in our society today? Well, I submit to you, you look for character. You look for character. And as I reflect on this passage, and I'm trying to look for the good in our society, as I'm trying to apply this passage, I think about Jonathan. Jonathan, who's second in command, and how he responds to a David in humility, in humility. I don't want to be overly political, and I also don't want to be irrelevant. I don't want to run from what the scriptures say. And this morning, I'd like for a brief moment to reflect upon the vice president President Pence, President, Vice President Pence makes a very clear profession of faith. He makes it clear that he professes to believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior. And I personally think that Vice President Pence has shown us, I don't, I don't think he's perfect, nobody's perfect, even David wasn't perfect. I'm not touting everything about Vice President Pence, but I am saying to you that he has shown us humility. He's demonstrated humility as a Christian. First of all, and especially in this time of post-election, first of all, the vice president is always in the background. By very nature, he's not in the limelight. He's the second fiddle. He's not the most important one. That takes a certain degree of humility just to be second fiddle, period. But not only is he second fiddle, but he's gotten very little credit. A lot has been said about the election and how many votes that the president received but I hear very little about how many votes the vice president received. I hear very little about how he contributed to the ticket. I personally believe that a number of individuals voted for the ticket because of President, Vice President Pence. That's never mentioned. Credit's never given that way.
still further. Vice President Pence has come under a great deal of criticism in some circles for faithfully fulfilling his duties in announcing the outcome of the Electoral College. He simply did his duty. But he has not retaliated against the reproofs and public insults that he has received. He has not been defensive. And please listen carefully to what I'm saying. I'm staying a mile away from the whole issue of the president and removing him from presidency and everything. I'm not talking about that except to say this. Vice President Pence has resisted the temptation to solely act in removing the president out of selfish pride. I'm not talking about anything else. I'm just saying that he resisted the temptation when so many people would applaud him and because he could be rightly upset that he's been abandoned and think, here's a way to get even, here's a way to get power, I can move from vice president to president. I'm just saying to you, he has resisted the temptation to solely act in selfish interest. That's commendable. No matter what you think about everything else, that is commendable. Still further, Vice President Pence has announced that he will attend the inauguration of President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris. He will participate in publicly celebrating them and congratulating them on their victory. That's humility. He's going to be there. Character matters. Humility matters. And not only will he be there, but President Biden, when asked the question of what he thinks about Vice President Pence being at the inauguration, said, Mike, and then he quickly corrected himself and gave him the dignity that he deserves, said Vice President Pence would be welcomed at the inauguration. And then he goes on to say, and I quote, I'd be honored to have him there. I'd be honored to have him there. Through all of this hoopla and mess, I'd be honored to have him there. That says something about how to conduct yourself. That says something about how character matters. Character matters in every sphere of life. Every vocation. We cannot live compartmental lives. Character doesn't just matter when you teach Sunday school, when you sit in a pulpit, when you sit in a pew. Character always matters. It is going to be the downfall if we don't have character. It's going to be the downfall of our marriage. It's going to be the downfall of our society. It's going to be the downfall of everything. Character matters. Integrity matters. 
It matters in our family. It matters in our church. It matters in our workplace. It matters in our businesses. It matters in our society as a whole. What is the problem with this world? It's because we don't know who we can trust. Because we don't know what is right and what is wrong. Because we don't know what motivates people. Because of the selfishness, because of the pride, because people are in it for themselves. Because people are power hungry. Character matters. And what's the only solution to character? Character doesn't come through the ballot box. Character comes through a personal relationship to Jesus Christ and a true submission to his word. And I say a true submission to his word because I fully believe that Saul was born again and yet he let his his pride run away with him. There are people who are truly born again and they let their pride be their undoing and we see it time and time again in society and I'm not going to go through the moral failures of spiritual leaders and the impact upon their institutions. I'm just saying to you this morning that character matters. That is why we have to preach the gospel. That's why we as a people of God have to constantly say that we must be under the authority of God when even Christians encourage us to disobey the law. There's no excuse. We must be people of character. It matters. For without it, it will be our destruction. Without it, there's violence. Without it, there's hatred. Without it, God is not glorified. And that is always the highest priority. That's always our greatest concern. Not peace, not prosperity. Our highest concern must always be the glory of God. May God make us a people of character. And may we love character in others. And may we trust in Christ as the source of that character. Let's pray. Almighty God, we pray, first and foremost for ourselves, help us to be people of character. Guard us from pride. Guard us from selfish ambition. Guard us from loving in others anything other than character. Lord, may we not exalt man. May we exalt you. May we recognize that all true success ultimately comes from your hand. You are the giver of every good and perfect gift. Oh Lord, may we not be dismayed this morning because of leadership, but Lord, may we be encouraged in our God who's over that leadership. And may we learn this morning that we can trust you in your decisions, that you were vindicated in choosing David when everyone thought that Eliab would be the one. Lord, refine us.
Make us different from this world. You have told us that your ways are not our ways and your thoughts are not our thoughts. This whole thing started with Israel wanting to have a king like the nations round about them. Lord, may we so long for leaders in our church, in our society that are different from the leaders round among us. May we long for leaders of character. Lord, may we exalt pride. Excuse me, may we exalt humility and not pride. Independence upon you, not self-dependence. And may we look to you as the keeper of our nation and no one else. Guard us from the fate that so easily could become us. We ask for revival. We ask for the outpouring of your spirit. We pray for a renewed commitment to your word. We pray for allegiance to you in Jesus' name. Amen.